This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peters. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. 10 years ago, Common Core was about to become one of the most popular education reforms of the last half century. Common Core was premised on the assumption that high national standards, stating clearly what students are supposed to learn in school, would lift their performance to levels achieved in other industrialized countries. It was fostered by grants funded by the Melinda and Bill Gates Foundation, endorsed by the National Governors Association and the Council of Chief State School Officers. And it was given the firm backing of the Barack Obama administration and by prominent Republican education reformers, such as Jeb Bush, Florida's former governor. But despite the popularity of Common Core when initially proposed, it ran into trouble as soon as states began to adopt these standards. And today, Common Core lies in the ash heap of history, says Tom Loveless in his new book, Between the State and the Schoolhouse, Understanding the Failure of Common Core. It has just been released by Harvard Education Press. Well, I have Tom Loveless with me today on the Education Exchange. He's a former senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Thank you, Tom, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks for having me, Paul. Well, so I gave a little brief history there, but how, what's your idea? What, what do you think is the origins of Common Core? How did they really get into the, into the system and, and emerge so quickly as the reform? Well, the idea of standards-based reform had been around a long time, and it had been tried uh, in the States in the 1990s. It had been tried under No Child Left Behind in a slightly different form than Common Core. The decision of what the standards would be under NCLB was left up to the states. But by the time we got to 2009, No Child Left Behind was in free fall. It was completely uh, politically untenable, and it had fallen in popularity to the point where people just knew we had to get rid of No Child Left Behind and replace it with something else. So there were three powerful groups. There was the National Governors Association, there was CCFSO, which is the, the organization of uh, state school chiefs, and a group called Achieve, which had experimented with standards around the country for a long time as well. These three groups got together and said, let's develop some common standards that would be shared across states. And uh, that's basically the birth of Common Core. So there's one thing about it that is different from No Child Left Behind, and that is it really didn't focus so much on the, what was the level of proficiency one had to achieve. It just sort of mainly defined the curriculum you should be studying at grade three, grade five, and so on. Yes, and they did that in an interesting way. It defined the content of curriculum. It didn't necessarily define curriculum itself, when, which uh, it really was left up to local officials. I, I always have the trouble of this, this figuring out. How yeah. can you define the curriculum without defining its content? I know. I know. It, you're exactly right. It, it's, it's like saying, um, you know, a, a human being without a heart and a brain and a, and a muscular system, et cetera. But uh, that's what Common Core intended to do. It, it, it intended to define the content of curriculum, and it did it in a different way than No Child Left Behind, because what it did was it took 
what it defined to be college and career readiness. And by the way, I think that just means college readiness. I, I haven't seen a career readiness written yet. But it, a career as a ditch digger? Is, is, can you have a career as a ditch digger? There are just too many careers. And the idea that you need to know Algebra 2 to be a ditch digger or a plumber is, is somewhat absurd. So um, it really in, uh, involved taking college readiness, which means you'd be qualified to go to college and not have to take a remedial class. And then it backward mapped those that knowledge and skills all the way back from the end of 12th grade back to kindergarten and said, okay, now we've defined what it means to be college ready. Let's divide that up into 13 years worth of content and take it all the way back to kindergarten. And, and that was a very ambitious task and I think rather foolhardy as well. Well, you know, there is such a thing as human variability and not everybody learns exactly X is a kindergartner and Y as a first grader and Z as a second grader and so on down the line. So it's just sort of, you know, we know that we all have our own rate of learning and we, and we all know that some kids uh, come to school with all kinds of background in first grade or, and some kids lack the very basics. So you, how do you put everybody on the same table? Well, that was one of the key weaknesses in Common Core was the rigidity of it. So the idea was they would develop these standards and then everything else in education would fall in line behind these standards. So teachers know what you just said. They, they know kids come to them varying in their performance. Uh, some are two years above grade level, some are two years below grade level. And they have to take curriculum and instruction and tweak it in such a way that those kids' needs are met. And Common Core is basically saying, no, you shouldn't do that. Everybody's got to be doing the same thing. And we're going to define that on a grade by grade basis. Well, of course, the proponents of Common Core say that that theory or that, uh, that uh, approach just led to people underestimating what students could do. And so especially poor kids and uh, minority kids would be treated differently and expectations were set at a low level and you had to raise expectations. And so really Common Core was a way of raising expectations by the school system, by teachers, by principals, and that would actually change our educational system. Yeah, and that's a fair argument. Uh, there are places where there are low expectations, and unfortunately, you know, history shows that uh, black kids, Hispanic kids, kids from disadvantaged backgrounds are the ones that often go to schools and encounter teachers with expectations that just aren't high enough. Um, Common Core is just too blunt an instrument to try to fix that. Well, you know, uh, Common Core was deliberately created as a state movement with the national governors behind it, with the chief state officers in education behind it. Uh, and, and the federal government was not explicitly involved at all. And that was based on experience from the past that once the federal government gets into education, politics comes in. And so um, why didn't this approach uh stay out of politics because not 
long after the idea got started, this became a political football. Right. And the opposition arose really among grassroots uh, folks. It started with the Tea Party. In 2014, uh, actually back in 2012, the Tea Party had gained a foothold in the Republican Party and became a force. The Tea Party despised Common Core. It just saw Washington's fingerprints all over it. And by 2014, it had created movements in state legislatures to try to rescind Common Core, and it succeeded in doing that in three states uh, in 2014. What's interesting, though, is Tea Party, of course, sits on the right of the political spectrum, but on the left, there was growing disenchantment, and that had to do with just the whole idea of testing itself. And so you saw teachers unions, they had originally backed Common Core, they began to back away from Common Core, they began showing a lot of doubt about Common Core, and teachers at the local level were organizing against Common Core. Your Ed Next uh, survey showed this complete falling out of support for Common Core among these two uh, different wings of the political spectrum, teachers unions and teachers on the left, and then, of course, the Tea Party on the right. Well, of course, I think the real turning point for teachers was when some states began to use Common Core as a way of uh, uh, introducing a merit pay system, saying for teachers who are able to to teach to these standards, we're going to give them a salary increase uh, that we're not going to give to others. And I think at, at that point, the unions turn against it and, and lots of teachers turn against it. Right. And teacher evaluations using these standards were written into Race to the Top as well, So, which was a federal uh, incentive program. And so states had received monies promising to use some kind of assessment in their evaluation of teachers. So it wasn't just merit pay, it was also just kind of routine teacher evaluation. And, and you're right, you're exactly right, teachers did not like that idea. The Obama administration sort of quietly tried to throw its support behind Common Core through race to the top and through waivers for No Child Left Behind. They said, okay, if you don't wanna come to no child left behind rules and regulations come with an alternative set and they sort of implied that common core was part of that set without quite clearly saying it uh, but then that opened the door to the tea party to then make an accusation that this was a federal uh, set of standards that's right like i said the obama administration um the support of Common Core from the Obama administration was not very subtle. If they were trying to be subtle about it, failed. And uh, that did inspire in the red states. The first three states that rescinded Common Core were Indiana, Oklahoma, and South Carolina, all red states. And the state legislators from uh, very red districts were adamantly opposed to Common Core and they tied it to Obama. I think also uh, the Tea Party saw this as a way to organize, to build to their coalition, to reach out to parents, critics of the school system, and to embarrass sort of middle of the road Republicans who had signed on to Common Core. So 
you had a lot of backtracking by Republican politicians when they found that all of a sudden they had a problem in their own political party. And this gave the Tea Party an issue, which uh, actually they got some people elected on it. Yeah, that's right. And if you recall in the early Republican debates, uh, Donald Trump in 2015, they started holding the debates in the summer of 2015. And Donald Trump was hanging Common Core around these governors' necks, like Jeb Bush. And the governors were reacting as if, well, that's yesterday's news. We don't want to talk about that. And Trump was able to use uh, uh, Common Core as an issue that made his opponents, the ex-governors, um, Chris Christie, uh, like I said, Jeb Bush, he was able to make them look like establishment figures. And that's what he wanted to do, of course. That was one of his uh, strategies. Well, Tom, the title of your book is Between the State and the Schoolhouse. And I'm wondering why you chose that particular title for the book. The subtitle, of course, is Understanding the Failure of Common Core, which is really right. It's all about that. But why do you title the book Between the State and the Schoolhouse? Well, I mentioned that the theory of Common Core was that these standards would be used to drive other aspects of schooling downstream. And by downstream, I mean further down into the system. So this system is extremely complex. Um, I've studied your work to learn this over the years, that K-12 system, when you move from the state level to district levels, down to school levels, down to classrooms, each one of those steps involves another set of actors, another set of complexities. And so I focus on two aspects of schooling that are very important. I focus on curriculum and instruction and show that with Common Core's best intentions, curriculum and instruction didn't change very much. And then second of all, when they did change, they didn't change necessarily the way the Common Core authors wanted them to change. So. Um, the problem of trying to direct reform from the top of the system down to the bottom, uh, that's almost impossible to achieve. It's, it's reform through remote control. Many a slip between cup and lip. Yes. It, 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 there's lots of opportunities for things to go wrong when somebody on high says, we are going to do this in every classroom across the country. Yes. Because teachers will interpret it differently. School principals above them will interpret it differently. Uh, district leaders will interpret them differently. And with all that, you get tremendous variation. You also get ideological, and that's another form of politics that happens. You get this micro politics that occurs where you get street level bureaucrats who make decisions based on their own ideological beliefs about what curriculum should be and how instruction should be conducted. And along comes Common Core and they say, oh, that's, I'm in total agreement. But of course, they're not necessarily in total agreement. They see it as a way to use uh, upper level mandates to implement their own ideas as far as curriculum and instruction. Well, of course, Common Core was vaguely defined from on high. I mean, there's a plenty of ambiguities in the rules, and probably necessarily so, because uh, they, they realized there were all these differences of opinion. So when they formulated these standards, they had a certain ambiguity to them that uh, permitted a range of interpretations. 
Yes, they did. On the other hand, however, I would say as standards go, they were they actually erred on the other side. They were too specific uh, in many instances, especially uh, in mathematics. I think they were they were far too more specific than they needed to be, and uh, that they ran into some troubles in English language arts. The best example of that is the whole fiction nonfiction controversy which erupted a couple of years after the adoption of Common Core, where the Common Core authors recommended that in the early grades up until high school, 50% of the kids reading should be fiction and 50% should be nonfiction. Now, I've studied reading for a long time. I have no idea where they got this 50%, 50% division, you know, idea. It, it, it's crazy. Uh, there's no evidence that kids will become better readers if they read you know, equal amounts of nonfiction and fiction. And then by high school- Yeah, there was a little bit of the idea of content knowledge. You needed to know content if you were going to be able to read. And if you just read literature, there's no content there, I guess. Yeah, no, that that is the argument. There's a lot of content in literature. You actually learn a lot about English life from reading Middlemarch. Yes, or you you can learn a lot about the French Revolution by reading A Tale of Two Cities. Uh, so there is a lot of content in literature, but the level of specificity on that particular dictate, uh, 50% equal division, that just created a lot of problems. And no one knows wh- why they were so specific with that. Is school, well, first of all, before I get to that, I want to ask about your evidence because, okay, you say it's a failure, you cite a bunch of studies, but how good are these? of Common Core. I mean, they, the studies tend to show that it had, if it had any positive effect, it was very slight. It may have had a slight negative effect, but mainly it tends to show no effect. Uh, but are these studies really good enough to nail this down? No, they're not. Uh, they're, but they're the best we can come up with, at least that anyone's come up with so far. Let's put it that way. They're, as causal evidence goes, um, these, the causal warrant of all of these studies just isn't as great as it is in, in evaluating other policies in education. It's hard to evaluate um, a policy like standards. And in my own work, for example, I've, I've hesitated and, and not claimed any sort of causal warrant with my studies. I mean, because we don't even know when these standards go into effect. So if you're using some sort of interrupted time series model where you're saying, okay, as of this date, Common Core began, we don't know when it began. We don't know when the previous standards began and when they ended. So those are the kinds of problems that make evaluating a policy like Common Core extremely difficult. Well, some people say standards were raised in the States. We, one of the, I, I've actually looked at that myself, and there's no doubt that states raised their expectations for student performance after Common Core was proposed. So from the, that very narrow perspective, you can say it was a big success. I think that argument, and I, I know the work that you're referring to that, that you did, I think that argument is stronger to make in the fourth and eighth grades, because that's the evidence that was examined, but not in high school. For example, I was just looking at Massachusetts recently, looking at their 12th grade NAEP scores, 
and the gap, just like you've done before with fourth and eighth grade, looking at the gap between the percentage of proficient students in Massachusetts on their own state test, the MCAS, and compared it to proficiency on NAEP at the 12th grade. And the gap is just as large. It's 50 points. It's 40, 50 points. It's massive. So what happens is Massachusetts, when kids get into high school, now they're going to take the MCAS. Well, guess what? The MCAS means something because they have to pass that 10th grade MCAS in order to graduate from high school. And this, so the standards in Massachusetts at the 12th grade level, we use that same methodology, are actually out of whack with NAEP. They're much, much lower. So I would say, yes, there is some uh, evidence that states raise their cut points for proficiency on fourth and eighth grade tests. That evidence does not exist at the 12th grade level. That's interesting. That's, uh, that's sort of a new uh, set of findings out there. I, I, I'm sure you're absolutely correct. Well, does this mean that school reform is dead? And, and, or, and could we also say, did, did Common Core kill school reform more generally? Did it lead to a division of, between those who wanted school choice and uh, uh, those who wanted to focus in on accountability? And you got a, uh, a split within the, uh, within the reform movement and, uh, and it's never come back together again. Well, the reform movement seems to be dividing, uh, you're right, politically, but I don't think Common Core did it. I, I think it's other issues that are doing it. Uh, critical race theory is one. Uh, the accountability people and the choice people have never been that comfortable with each other anyway, in terms of how those two uh, ideas can coexist. Um, I, you know, in my book, what I do in the final chapter is urge a greater emphasis on, on the science of education. So, as I said, I focus on instruction and curriculum. Those are both uh, sort of the dark sides of the moon. We, we don't know much about effective curriculum and effective instruction. We know some things, but we, we have much more to discover there. And so what I urge at the end of my book is we, we stop worrying about these various forms of regulation. And let's be frank about it. Common Core and standards are all regulatory tools. They're all, they are regulation. They're attempts uh, uh, at the top of the system to regulate what happens at the, down at the ground level. So what I urge is that we give teachers and schools more tools and more effective tools in teaching and learning. Now, a uh, very good point, actually. And yet uh, we have the pandemic. We, we know students learned much less last year than they uh, had been learning, even, even though learning has never been that good in the last 10 years. Uh, it was terrible last year. I mean, every data set that anybody is bringing back is pointing that the losses may be as much as a half a year. That's what uh, the uh, McKinsey report says. Other reports, you know, are in the same ballpark. Um, so there's a huge problem that's, that's burgeoning. And it could be, get worse this year because we don't have kids back in school in a normal environment this this fall probably very probably 
we are not going to have a normal fall. So given that, isn't there going to be a passion to do something about it? I think there will be. And I think, first of all, the whole idea that assessments are somehow dead is wrong. Uh, you're going to have both policymakers and parents and school people, which is a pretty powerful coalition, saying, we need to at least measure and find out where these kids are. Now, I agree with you. What they're going to find out is the kids are not in a good place. The question then is, what do you do about that? And we actually do have, we, we have a literature on different ways of remediation. We have a literature on interventions that have been scientifically evaluated through randomized controlled trials and have been shown to be effective. So I think we're going to have to be more flexible at the local level and bring in some of these interventions and use them. I mean, tutoring is the one that you know everybody talks about, but there are others as well uh, in order to address you know these uh, problems that have that we've encountered because of the pandemic. Well, tutoring would be a great thing. I've always thought you can only learn fast if you are being, uh, if you have a classroom of, of, of one-to-one, one teacher for one child. At the, when that happens, you can have extremely rapid learning because you can have immediate adaptation. If the teacher is good, you can have very rapid adaptation to the particulars of the situation. But you know, that's incredibly expensive. So how can we use tutors at scale? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I haven't written a book on tutoring, so <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm just saying uh, tutoring is not the only intervention. There are other interventions that, that can be used and can be used within classrooms with existing personnel. And there are uh, also curriculum materials that can be used that are good for boosting the performance of kids who are behind. I mean, I, I'm most concerned about the kids who are, uh, who, who would have been two years behind anyway and now are three years behind. That, that's just so difficult for those kids and it's so difficult for teachers to try to address those kids' needs. So we need to be giving them, like I said, let's, let's, let's develop new tools that are effective. Let's use this opportunity uh, to actually advance our knowledge just like we do with medicine or we do with other fields, engineering. You know, we, we, we use an earthquake in engineering in order to figure out how to make buildings better. Well, let's use this to learn how to teach better and create better, more effective curriculum. So you're saying what we really need is a much more intensive research agenda, trying out, taking a careful look at all these ideas out there for improving instruction. And let's just, evaluate them. Let's, let's have lots and lots of carefully done evaluations on little interventions so that people will know what works and what doesn't work. And that should be the reform of the future. That's right. And I fear, I fear we may get something like Common Core, where we get a group of very powerful people together sitting in a room in Washington who say, well, no, the way to do this is to create a whole new batch of regulations, and then we make sure the states adopt them. And then once the states adopt them, we have them push the districts to, to adopt them as well. And then we police it all the way down to the system, and that just simply doesn't work. Well, your idea is really um, compelling 
I'm just trying to figure out what politician thinks they can win an election by saying, we need a lot of little research interventions and a lot of carefully designed studies in order to improve our educational system. I am campaigning for governor on this platform. Yeah, it's not gonna be easy. Right, I, I agree with that. Well, thank you, Tom, for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's been great learning about uh, your insights into Common Core, its history, and the problems it faced. Thank you, Paul. I've been speaking with Tom Loveless, former senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and author of a new book entitled Between the State and the Schoolhouse, Understanding the Failure of Common Core. It's just been released by Harvard Education Press. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.